It's 2016, and sociologist Zainab Tufekci needs to confirm a few quotes for an article she is writing about Donald Trump. So she does what most of us do when we're looking for quotes. She hops on YouTube, pulls up some Trump rallies, and starts watching. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Here's the bottom line. We've got to keep our country safe. You look at what's happening. We've got to keep our country safe. But as she watches, Tufekci's attention begins to shift from Trump and his supporters to YouTube itself. As soon as one video ends, the site automatically begins to play a new one, something YouTube's recommendation system has picked out just for her. And that's how Tufekci finds herself watching videos like this one. So the ethnose is an ideal that it would be a state for all people of the white race. It would be our homeland. It would be our safe space. And this. Do you choose to believe that 1.2 million people, systematically, in overcrowded lots of 2,000, were complicit in their own deaths, as to not resist? Not even once? Each video promoting white supremacy and claiming the Holocaust never happened. Tufekci is appalled but she can't stop watching. After a while, she starts to wonder, does YouTube's recommendation system always swing so far right, so quickly? Tufekci is a social scientist, so she sets up an experiment. She creates a new YouTube account, one with no user history. And this time, she feeds YouTube a starter culture of the names of Democratic candidates. You know what we are going to do together? We're going to create an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. Then she leans back and lets autoplay do its thing. Before long, YouTube becomes a conveyor belt of left-wing conspiracy theories. I would have done a legitimate investigation to find out what exactly happened on 9-11. How did they know who did this so quickly like they did Lee Harvey Oswald? And more stuff is coming out now also, how much the Bush administration ignored the intelligence. It was almost like they ignored it because they wanted it to happen. It seems like, no matter where she chooses to start on the political spectrum, YouTube's algorithm nudges her preferences as far right or as far left as it can. Maybe this is a political phenomenon, she thinks. Politics of the U.S. is polarized. Maybe YouTube is just reflecting that back to her. To test her hypothesis, she decides to run her experiment again, but this time with something completely innocuous. Jogging. In this video, I share five running tips for beginners, aka... Within a few videos, YouTube leapfrogs from entry-level stuff... The first thing that I want you to think about is your shoulder blades. ...to the world of ultra-marathons. There are no words to describe the sheer pain. Maybe it's a fluke, she thinks. So she tries again, this time typing in the word vegetarianism. YouTube quickly jumps to this. We come to the real issue that most vegans have with the honey industry, the enslavement of bees and the stealing of their honey. By now, the pattern seems clear. YouTube wants to radicalize her. It wants to take her to an extreme, convert her to a cause. But YouTube isn't alive. It can't act on its own, which means someone, somewhere, has radicalized YouTube. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, it's the power of coders, maybe the most quietly influential people on the planet. When YouTube goes off-roading, when it takes users on a giddy ride from Trump rallies to Holocaust deniers, it doesn't just happen by accident. It happens because coders built it into the software. Same goes for every feature on every piece of software we use. Take Facebook's like button, the little blue thumb that gives the world a numerical measure of how clever or deep or fantastic you are. Coders created that button. Coders made it possible for you to be listening to me right now on whatever device it is you're using. Everything we love and hate about modern technology comes back to choices made by coders. But most of us have only a vague idea of who these people are or what it is that they do. Our guest on the podcast today is journalist Clive Thompson, author of the book Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. Clive compares the influence of coders today to that of America's founding fathers. The founding fathers were a small group of people who you might say wrote the rule sets that would shape the way we govern ourselves. Right now, coders are writing the rule sets for the world we live in, from how we buy things to how we watch movies and listen to music to how we work and communicate with each other. They're the invisible framers of our increasingly digital world. Invisible, that is, until now. Clive, so great to have you here today. So to start off, what caused you to want to write this book? And do you believe that we have a collective blind spot when it comes to understanding, as you say in the subtitle, how code is remaking the world? I think the problem is that no one has any idea how software is made. You know, if you were to ask the average intelligent person, how is a 747 made? They don't really know, but they could hazard a guess. You know, how is heart surgery done? You know, again, they don't really know, but they could sort of figure it out. But if you ask them how software is made, it just seems like magic. So I really wanted to get inside the group of people that make this stuff to illuminate how it's made and what their priorities are. Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, was the one who originally wrote years ago saying software is eating the world. Yeah. Uh, and my, my joke in the book is that by now it's sort of digesting it, actually. I think we're <laughs> past the oral mastication phase. It's sort of difficult now to do anything except maybe go for a nice walk in the wilderness that doesn't use software. And even there, you might be using the GPS on your phone to keep yourself from getting lost, right? Right. And what blows my mind is, I mean, we've seen in our own lives last, you know, 30, 40 years, how just dramatically the world has changed. In the next 20, 30 years, the change is going to be even more dramatic, arguably. Code is being written today that will control our cars, our appliances, our factories, maybe drones whizzing in the air, delivering our Amazon boxes, maybe even weapon systems. I mean, where does this go? Yeah, I think that over the next few decades, we're going to see software pretty much in in every facet of, of everyday life in places that we still as yet kind of don't have it and will have it more and more. The rise of these conversational agents that we've seen, you know, things like um, Alexa and Siri, uh, those are only getting 
you know, bigger and more ambitious. The companies behind them are trying to make them essentially the like the new operating system for how we order things, how we um, ask for the time, how we ask for the weather, how we ask for food. The other one is, uh, and we can talk more about this later, but there's an increasing amount of AI being woven into everything, right? And um, when I say AI, I mean things that can predict or look at pictures or look at faces and recognize them or can talk or pretend to understand. And that, you know, you're getting that woven into everything from the smart devices to photocopiers to, you know, microwaves. You're going to be talking to you and asking you how things are going. That is going to be a a really, really big deal over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. And all of our appliances will be talking to each other. Oh, God. Oh, God, yes. It, 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 <laughs> and our cars will be talking to each other. In a somewhat horrifying way, right? I mean, my wife a couple years ago bought an Alexa. There was a sale. She got excited. She, she decided she wanted one. It comes home, and I'm like, you know, why, you just bought a listening device, you know, for a major corporation that probably tries to keep it as careful as possible and as private as possible. But just the way software works, you're going to have leaks. That's just the way this stuff happens. Every major corporation has had some problem where they've lost all the stuff. So I'm just sort of waiting for the day when all the weird chit chat that I've been saying in front of my Alexa, lo and behold, is, you know, dumped and extracted by some Russian hacker coalition in Moscow uh, or found on a server in China, right? This is a world that we are absolutely moving into. In our family, we've just accepted it. I just assume Jeff Bezos is on the other end of, of the election, <laughs> exactly. just listening to our breakfast chatter and, you know. Individually approving um, uh, things. Right. Yes, very smart. Um, it strikes me that the technology disappears and is invisible to us until it starts breaking down. I think that's absolutely true. Sometimes I think of it as almost the intellectual furniture of our lives, right? And so, you know, you use it so much that you forget it's there. In fact, there's this joke that if you want to see your furniture, rearrange your living room, you know, Mm -hmm. then you'll realize that I have a sofa again, right? And so what happens is we get in these intellectual habits and these existential habits of using these devices to broker everyday life. And, you know, we don't notice their effects until something goes wrong. In this case, it was people unable to get into their houses because their Google systems broke down. In other cases, it's going to be, you know, self-driving cars that suddenly have some weird bug that means you get locked inside a car or something like that, right? Or it could be an AI system that uh, suddenly goes haywire and begins overestimating the amount of fraud on a network so suddenly you can't use your bank card because it thinks that the fraud's happening all the time. These are the essentially the, the fragile edge cases that make us suddenly sit up and notice how much software is in our lives. You know, and it, and it, it strikes me that just in the last, like, 12 to 24 months, we've had a little bit of an awakening. And it strikes me it's because two things have happened in sequence. One is I've just seen among my friends and, and our you know, community that people are waking up to the fact that their social media addiction is making them less happy. Yes. Right? I mean, this has been kind of an emergent yes. mm-hmm. realization. Yes. And the second was this outrageous case of, of the Russian hacking of Facebook and the elections and, and yep. other platforms. I think we are in a very, very interesting pivotal moment now in our relationship to software because it is true that people have been waking up to the dangers of the software world that we've created for ourselves. For the first 15 years of the internet and mobile phones, there was a lot of excitement about the new abilities we had. Suddenly it was possible to uh, share our ideas rapidly and quickly with our friends to perceive and understand parts of the world that you could have never have seen before. And that was and remains cool, right? That's why we're logging into Facebook and Instagram every day. We like that sort of ESP that we get when we're able to observe peripherally what's happening in the world around us. But I would say in the last three years, and very much I think the election was was a tipping point, two groups of people started to freak out a little bit. One is the everyday users, people who looked 
at the election and looked at the way that trolls and Russian forces and other foreign forces tried to and successfully get into the electoral process via uh, Facebook's newsfeed, via YouTube, even via things like Instagram. And the second thing, and this is I did not expect when I started writing my book four years ago, was people inside technology started deciding that they didn't like the direction of their companies. You started seeing these worker uprisings at Google and Microsoft. That was unexpected. I expected people like maybe you and me to get worried about social media in our lives. I did not expect the worker bees to start to rise up. Mm -hmm. Clive was surprised because coders don't often look up from their work to see the impact that work is having. They're shoegazers. They have to be. But to understand why, you have to understand what makes coders tick. What do they enjoy? What are they good at? Well, by and large, some of the stuff you might expect, they're good at doing logical thinking. They enjoy logical thinking. They enjoy taking a kind of a big problem and breaking it down into little steps because that's what you have to do when you're programming a computer. You have to take the thing you're trying to get the computer to do and think of it step by step by step, completely logically leaving nothing out. So they're incredibly meticulous. In fact, sometimes, as they would say to me, uh, to a fault, they're the type of people who get pissed off if they have to deal with other people who are not being very precise. They're not good and they don't like dealing with the nuances and the gray areas of human communication because it isn't precise. It doesn't work very logically, right? So that's kind of the first blush, I think, of what people would expect. But there were some surprises I found when I talked to developers. One of them is that they are amazingly good at dealing with frustration. And that's because You know, programming is incredibly frustrating. Everything is always broken. Nothing's working. Literally, code that you wrote five minutes ago is already not working. And so the people who thrive in that environment are the ones who are comfortable just pounding nails into the floorboard of history with their forehead, right? Um, (laughs) That's not something I expected, but it's very, very interesting. And the last thing I found that really intrigued me and became... uh, became kind of a tentpole, I think, for understanding coder psychology, is that they are all very much obsessed with efficiency. And it becomes an x-ray vision that's hard to turn off, right? Like these coders would talk to me about how they would look around the world and all they would see was maddening inefficiencies that they wanted to stamp out, right? Like this one woman who worked for um, Zillow in San Francisco talked about going to work that morning and standing at the corner and seeing people crossing the street and deciding that they were not crossing the street in the optimally efficient way and feeling like she wanted to yell at them. And she's like, this is crazy, right? This is crazy. She knows she's crazy. And yet she can't turn it off. And so that sort of passion, almost an aesthetic for efficiency, is something that really stood out the more developers I spoke to. Clive says this is what makes coders coders. It's the magic ingredient in so many of our go-to apps. Uber or Lyft wouldn't exist if somebody hadn't gotten very pissed off by how hard it is to hail a cab. But here's the thing. When coders strive for efficiency, they're not usually trying to solve the world's problems. More often than not, they're trying to solve their own problems. So what happens when you take young men just out of college, throw heaps of money at them, and tell them to make useful apps? Well, they'll create services like Washio, which picks up your dirty laundry, or Handy, which helps you find somebody to clean your apartment. Because these are the problems that seem most pressing when you recently stopped living with your mom. What they're not thinking about, Clive says, is problems their software will create. Uber and Lyft disrupted the taxi business and killed jobs that immigrants in American cities have historically relied on. To understand why software solves some problems and creates others, we have to look at coder demographics. Or to put it another way, why are coders so often young white dudes? It's more complicated than you might think. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. One day in junior high, Mary Allen Wilkes gets some surprising career advice from her teacher. When you grow up, the teacher says, you should be a computer programmer. It's 1951. Computer programmers exist, but not in any modern sense. Codes are written on punch cards, not screens. And computers are room-sized, overheating behemoths that programmers aren't allowed to touch. But Mary Allen doesn't know about any of that. Anyway, she already knows what she wants to be, a lawyer. She's analytical and rigorous, perfect qualities for practicing law. Eight years later, Mary Allen enrolls in Wellesley College, and her professors tell her she lacks the single most important quality needed in the field of law. She isn't a man. Law firms don't hire women, they say. That's when she remembers her teacher's advice. Back then, she'd hardly known what a computer was. Now everyone's talking about these mysterious machines that will somehow shape the future. She also knows that some of these machines live at MIT, fewer than 15 miles away. So, on the day she graduates college, Mary Allen drives over to MIT's employment office and asks if they have any openings for programmers. As a matter of fact, they do. After a short logic test, which she aces, she has a job. Over the next few years, Mary Allen Wilkes becomes a programming pioneer. She writes the operating system for the world's first personal computer, the Link, as well as one of the first programming manuals. And here's what might be the most remarkable thing. Throughout her career as a coder, no one is ever surprised that she's a woman. A decade before she got into the field, all of the programmers in the country's first programmable digital computer were women. In the late 1950s and early 60s, most of the full-time programmers at MIT's Lincoln Lab are women too. Today, the numbers look very different. In the U.S., only 20% of programmers are women. In 2017, a Google employee posted an internal memo arguing that most coders were men because women weren't biologically suited for the job. He was fired, but many of his colleagues anonymously posted in agreement. So what's changed since the days of Mary Allen Wilkes? Obviously not human biology, but the culture around computing, Clive Thompson says, that's a different story. Back in the 1950s, late 1950s and early 60s, computers were just coming out of the lab, right? So companies were buying them and research departments at universities were using them. And they were huge and they filled a room and no one knew how to program. There was no course you could go to to study computer programming. In fact, they didn't have computer science curricula really until the late 60s. So... What they would do is they would just advertise saying, well, do you like to solve puzzles? You know, do you like to do crosswords? Are you a logical thinker? In that case, 
you're hired, come on in and we'll train you on the job. So it was really an open door. Like it was really actually a merit-based, ambition-based hiring thing. And so it turns out that a lot of people that wanted to code were women. And in many ways, it was one of the most delightful parts of my reporting was hearing how much opportunity there was in a period, you know, this is a madman period, right? Like, sure. so this is like women are not getting a lot of professional opportunities. And yet fully 27% of all coders back in 1960 were women. And then, so what happened? A couple things changed. One is that as software became more important to corporations, they began to realize, wow, you know, we need to hire people who could go into management, right? Because we need a vice president who understands software. And in the 60s and 70s, you were not going to put any woman in a vice presidential or managerial role over other men. So they started hiring coders more for like someone who could fit their their central casting of what a manager would look like. They would be like, okay, here's Johnny. You've been here for 10 years. You're going to train him. He's going to be your boss, right? So that started huh. happening. And also, frankly, even things like if they got if they had kids by law in the 60s and 70s, you had to leave that job. So all this talent got driven out in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And then you started to see this hacker culture emerge, and it was very much teenage boys because, you know, in the early 80s, something very interesting happened, which is that the personal computer came along. And these were these little computers that you could sort of plug into a television, like the Commodore 64 or the VIC-20. But, and I can tell you from having been there back then, that it was very much just a boys' club, right? Because, you know, gender roles in the early 80s were pretty rigid. And so if the family bought a computer, you know, it went in the son's room, not mm-hmm. the daughter's room. And there's, there's research that shows this. Or the father would sit down and go, hey, son, we're going to learn basic together. And very rarely would he do that with the daughters, right? You know? Sure. And I, if I remember, like in the computer clubs back then, it was like just, it was really just a bunch of young boys, mostly young white boys. And that started to change things too. You know, you, you had all these, all those kids that I were hacking with in my um, in my teenage years. They went off and they all studied computer science. Like, in fact, the professors loved them because now suddenly there was these teenagers who showed up at age 18 who'd been programming for five years and they were leaving everyone in the dust. Again, those are mostly women being mm-hmm. left in the dust. Clive says the next wave of coders, the current wave, only widened the gender gap. Thanks to the internet, more people had a chance to learn how to program. But also thanks to the internet, which quickly became the world's biggest marketplace, today's coders grew up with the idea that writing software could make you real money. That is not something in the previous generations that anyone thought. And that changed sometimes the people that decided to get into it, right? You started to get these quote-unquote programmers, right? The guys who normally would have gone to, you know, a, uh, to a hedge fund on Wall Street after the 2008 collapse of Wall Street, they were like, well, where's my easy millions? And they started showing up at Silicon Valley and doing startups. The rise of the programmer made Silicon Valley even more white and young and male. In general, people hire people who remind them of themselves. There's a term for this, pattern matching. The lack of diversity just perpetuates itself. The imbalance had a profound effect on how software, especially social media software, got made. Clive sees an inverse correlation between how much diversity we see in Silicon Valley and how much abuse and bullying we see online. One of the problems with a lot of these social media companies is that they were all founded by young, recent college graduate white dudes. Really smart guys, you know, great ideas, genuinely great ideas. But because they were young white guys, and I can say this having having been a young white guy, you don't really get a lot of abuse 
online for just who you are. And so they were sort of yep. not thinking about, you know, future-proofing their designs for, like, crazy abuse, for, like, trolling, you know, for dogpiling where multiple accounts attack one account. One example that comes up several times in Clive's book, Coders, is Gamergate, an online movement of male gamers who use social media, Twitter in particular, to systematically, ruthlessly harass women in the video game industry. The higher-ups at Twitter didn't see it coming. Basically, they'd created this amazing new public forum, but they didn't know how to make it safe for everyone who wanted to use it, because in their experience, safety had never been an issue. And they were very flat-footed in even recognizing that was a problem. They're probably still flat-footed today. So it kind of would have been nice to have a, like less of a monoculture, I think, in, in who makes a software. You know, having a few more women a few more people of color, maybe even some older people. I mean, the other yep. th- the other weird thing about Silicon Valley is that, like, you know, you're kind of thrown out the window at about age 35 because you will no longer work 180 hours a week and you, you want, you know, you want decent pay. So, uh, so they didn't even have people who were old enough to have remembered, say, wars on Usenet. Uh, or email lists in the 90s that could yep. have said, hey, you know, guys, the social networking is a great idea, but I've been to this rodeo before and I have, I've learned some stuff. So I'm kind of a fan of like, you know, get some more cooks in this kitchen. Clive doesn't put all the blame for social media's problems on coders, though. He thinks we also need to talk about the industry's economic model. Remember Zainab Tufekci's experiment on YouTube? There's a reason YouTube's recommendation engine beelines to the extremes. People are more likely to watch controversial content, and YouTube needs people to keep watching. That need is baked into its business model. YouTube has promised to try and reduce the amount of of flat-out disinformation in its recommendations, but the truth is they make their money off those... 70% of all activity on YouTube comes from recommended videos. So if they did anything to reduce the amount that people click on recommended videos, they take money away from themselves. So in some respects, what really scares me is even less the technology than the economic models that have grown up around the technology that drive and propel terrible design decisions. By economic models, he means advertising. When social media sites decided to rely on advertising revenue instead of subscriptions, they put the needs of advertisers first. And you have social media that is now basically so profitable that the advertising, you know, tail is wagging the social media dog. Yep, yep. And so the advertising business model that supports Facebook and other companies, it strikes me that there are two things that's doing. One is it's incentivizing them to really prey on our susceptibility as humans to engage in certain kind of... High emotional su- subjects, exactly. Right, like, like and a, even obsessive compulsive behaviors with absolutely. our phones Absolutely, yes, else, exactly, right? yeah. Ooh, is there, is, there going to be, is there going to be something new in the news feed? Like, I, I better check it again. It's that, it's that casino sort of logic where, like, if you're not sure whether or not there's going to be a reward, you get obsessed with checking it over and over again. Right, and the second impact of the advertising model is that it creates a perverse incentive around privacy, right? I mean, the desire is to basically constantly sure. to, to know as much as possible about mm-hmm. us and to share that information with anyone willing to pay for it, which is sort of what happened with, uh, with Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica. Analytics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the advertising model is this, I suppose, catalytic bad decision that was made about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And sometimes I'll entertain these weird sci-fi thoughts of, wow, what if Silicon Valley hadn't gone that route, right? Like imagine a Facebook where it's like one of these quote-unquote freemium models where it's free for the basic stuff, 
But if you're a corporation or an organization that wants to have some kind of cool, you know, apps for like organizing groups in a better way, you pay, you know, 10 bucks a month. And if they had the like, 2 billion users, they would make an unreal amount of money off that. And yeah. without the advertising need to constantly track people, you wouldn't have the privacy stuff. You also wouldn't have a news feed that's constantly trying to get you to sit there and eat the salted peanuts that are coming down the news feed. You'd have an entirely healthier environment, it, you know, maybe closer to a kind of a boring example of that is LinkedIn, right? Which yep. is exactly that way. Yep. It's kind of the boring social network, yep. but it doesn't have the obsessive compulsive nature and it doesn't have, you know, Russian trolls injecting nonsense into, yep. the, uh, into the civic wheel. Yep. So maybe it's not all about the coders. Maybe if we want to save ourselves from the clickbait rabbit hole, and hey, while we're at it, save our democracy from internet trolls, we need to take a look at the venture capitalists who fund this stuff. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Y Combinator is a legendary seed accelerator in the tech startup world. Even if you haven't heard of it, you've heard of the companies it's helped launch. Dropbox, Airbnb, Reddit. Twice a year, it takes a couple dozen fledgling startups under its wing and tries to help them fly. And every round of development culminates with something called Demo Day, where the young companies introduce their software to a room full of eager venture capitalists. The presentations are make-or-break events, but there's one specific moment that really keeps young developers up at night. It's when they reveal their user growth chart. Will it look like a gentle ski slope with steady growth along the X and Y axes? Or will it look like a hockey stick with the data points briefly gathering steam and then taking off into near-vertical flight? Companies know that venture capitalists love hockey sticks, but to supersize their user bases, they need to make their software free. And that means they need to get their money somewhere else. Clive Thompson says so many of the things that bother us about social media are a direct result of the pressures venture capitalists exert on the industry. They're comfortable with a company that collapses quickly. You know, in one sure. year, it's gone. Lost all the money. And they're comfortable with a company that suddenly goes from 10 users to 10 million users overnight. Because those are the 1 in 10 or 1 in 100 wins that are going to pay back all the losses. So they like those two things. What they are uncomfortable with is just a functioning business that makes a little bit more money next year that everyone in their normal mind would regard as a fantastic success, right? If I built right. a company that employed 30 people and, you know, increased by 3% a year, I'm like, great, this is terrific. They sneer at that. And so this is kind of a deforming gravitational well in the world of software because if you're constantly pushing young engineers to create businesses that will only be considered successful if they metastasize to grow over the entire world, they are going to create unsustainable businesses, or I should say businesses that cannot be well-run, even by the people who are running them themselves. When I yep. talked to critics of Facebook, I mean, several of them said to me, I, I would say to them, so you know, who would be better at running Facebook than Mark Zuckerberg right now? There's got to be someone better. Sure. And they're like, well, 
I don't know. Like, it might be ungovernable. They're not sure that anyone could manage it and and deal with the U.S. and Malaysia and Russia and Latin America and all these places and all these local things. It feels like it shouldn't be one big company like that. But that is what venture capital pushes pretty much every company to try and become. So this brings us to the question of, like, what can we do to solve these problems? Right. One thing that's come up is we can choose to support companies that are not ad-supported. Another possible solution that's come up is the role of government, potentially, in breaking up some of these big companies. Antitrust, yeah. I think a lot of people are looking at antitrust right now as a first step towards reining in the problems of these very large tech companies. Because at the moment, most of these very large social network firms, YouTube, let's call it what it is, it's a social network, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they have no real competition, right? I mean, people leave Facebook, young people leave Facebook, but they go to Instagram. They're owned by the same company. Or they leave and they go to WhatsApp. Again, owned by the same company. So there's no incentive for any of these, any of these companies to truly try and compete and satisfy what their you know, users, I'd kind of prefer to call them customers, what their customers want them to do. But if they were actually separate individual companies. Imagine if like YouTube was competing with Google, right? You know, and they could make their own decisions without needing to uh, satisfy Alphabet's and Google's larger uh, financial needs. You could have very different decisions made. So I actually think that's a good first step. You know, that type of competition that antitrust has worked in the past, it could work again today. So you're with Elizabeth Warren on breaking up the big tech companies. Absolutely. And frankly, I think it would be exciting even on an engineering level too, right? Because many of these companies have become kind of stagnant. You talk to the engineers. It was very exciting to work for Google 10 years ago. It was very exciting to work for Facebook eight or nine years ago. It's not so exciting now. You're mostly just trying to optimize and tweak people clicking on stuff. And engineers like being given a really weird, new, hard challenge. So it would literally unlock actual real innovation if they were smaller companies. Clive says it would also help if the coders were more diverse in terms of gender and race and even geography. When I think about the dominance that San Francisco and Silicon Valley has, that's kind of a problem because that city has become like a one industry town. It's like a mining town. All you do is talk about tech. Whereas here in New York City, there's a tech scene, but it's kind of fourth or fifth tier. You know, it's below money. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sure. there's art. There's, you know, we've got advertising, all these things. And it actually creates a more diverse pool of technologists. You think of the startups that emerged in New York, and they're all, like, kind of hilariously cultural, like, you know, yep. Kickstarter and sure. Etsy, uh, Tumblr, Vimeo. It was all these people who were like, hey, like, wouldn't it be rad if we had a way to help my friend fund her poetry journal? These are great cultural yep. opportunities that no one in Silicon Valley would have thought about. So I'm a fan of like, let's have more tech scenes. Let's have them all across the U.S. where they're going to break off different problems that nobody's recognizing because they don't live there, right? You know, geography inspires ideas. So who's going to fix the software industry? Who's good at lasering in on a problem and dogging away until they solve it? Clive says, don't count out the coders. The thing that coders have in Silicon Valley is they have a lot of power because they are a talent industry and all the companies are fighting hard to keep them. Google poaches from Microsoft and Microsoft steals from Twitter. They're all going after the same people. So what started to happen in the last couple of years is that these engineers have realized that they actually have a fair amount of power within their companies and they have begun to stand up when they decide that the company is not going in a direction that they approve of. One very fascinating example two summers ago was at Google when 
it was discovered by a bunch of employees internally that Google was bidding on a potentially extremely lucrative, we're talking billions of dollars, contract for the military to do AI. And it looked like it was going to be AI potentially for drones, you know, to target enemies. And they decided, no way, you know, we did not get into Google to create AI for the military. And so they put together a petition internally. Within a few weeks, it had thousands of signatories, including everyday worker bees, including some of the top AI people at Google. And this grew and grew and grew to the point where people started resigning the company. There was about a dozen people that basically quit Google saying, we have the ability to go anywhere we want. We're programmers, we're developers. And so Google finally, in the face of this internal pressure, turned around and said, okay, we are not going to go after this contract. And this, to me, is quite interesting because it is the first time I think I can identify that coders have begun to really rise up as an internal political force. So I'm interested to ask you a question. When friends tell me that they're pregnant, I'll, I'll sometimes <laughs> say, uh, what's your fear to excitement ratio? Right, exactly. Because you, you, there's always some element of fear and sure. some element of excitement. I mean, when you look at the future that we're walking into with given the insanely fast-paced momentum we have in a lot of different directions with technology, yeah. what's your fear to excitement ratio? I would say I'm probably split right down the middle. I bet I'm 50% fear and 50% excitement, right? It almost feels like the two temperatures of water that aren't mixing in a stream beneath a tap, you know? Like I whip from one to another, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I definitely will see the sort of very cool things that still happen. You know, for all that we rag on social media, I constantly complain about it in my writing, there's still all these magnificent things it does for people all day long. It, it connects them to sources of knowledge they hadn't encountered before, to people that they weren't aware existed. It's still catalyzed some social movements. I mean, you look today at the dialogue around Black Lives Matter, and that would simply never have happened mm, yep. without YouTube, without Twitter, without Instagram, yeah. right? Me that, Too that, is another one. Me Too is another one, right? These are very huge social issues that have been serially ignored by the mainstream media for decades that exploded out into the public in a really good way because you gave people the tools to talk to each other, right? So I still look at that stuff and I go, that's great. Clive Thompson, so fantastic to have you on our Next Big Idea podcast. I was already aware of a lot of the problems that exist in technology, but now I'm much more aware of some of the solutions, and I leave this feeling more optimistic. No, oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I had a great time talking. If you'd like to share your thoughts about coders and other books we discuss on this podcast, join us at nextbigideaclub.com and use the promo code podcast for 10% off the cost of a subscription. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. Special thanks to Clive Thompson. His new book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World is available everywhere books are sold. You've been listening to The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Natalie Shisha. Sound design is by Jake Gorski. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovna. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.